while the sh- shuffling sort of uh, works itself out, if, you, if you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 23. We're going to work with verses 26 to 34, it's, but that's inside of a larger section. So we'll actually end up reading 26 down to 43, Luke chapter 23, 26 down to 43, if you want to get yourself settled there. If you've been trying to, to kind of keep track over the last few months, we've had a lot going on within the life of our church. Uh, we've sent teams to uh, Western Asia in order to encourage our team that's there. We just sent a team, they just came back recently to Uganda. Uh, our children's ministry has done two VBSs, one for older kids that was overnight back in June. Just last week, we did one for our younger kids here. Um, they We also had a group of recently kind of graduated fifth graders do a trip to Oklahoma in order to serve there. That's the culmination of their Truth Seekers program. Uh, Our student ministry has been, you know, like blowing and going all summer long. They're getting ready to take kids down to Camp Barnabas. We, most of the time before those kind of large things happen, we'll take a moment in our services to explain what, what is happening and then to pray over that. We also want to be able to circle back around and recap what happens at those things. And so, uh, two weeks from this Sunday, on July 31st, our celebration Sunday will be given to kind of recapping and celebrating what the Lord has done in our children's ministry and student ministry over the course of the summer. And then a little further down the road, we'll let you know when these take place. We'll have opportunities to come and uh, to hear about the Western Asia, the team that went over there to encourage our our church planting team that's there, as well as the team that went to Uganda and just recently came back. So they'll There'll be opportunities to hear about all of that, but really quickly, I just want us to be able to take a second and celebrate the convergence of two of those things. So a team just came back from Uganda. They went there in order to kind of begin solidifying a new partnership that we have with a missions organization called Sin 56 that trains up African missionaries to go to reach unreached people groups on the continent of Africa. We'll go into more detail on this another time, but it it essentially costs $500 a month to be able to equip and send an African missionary to uh, one of these unreached people groups in Africa. And during children, our younger kids VBS last week, our children raised $3,200 to send to that organization. Yeah, that's worth celebrating. So that is six months worth, uh, you can kind of conceptualize it, it's like six months worth of being able to train, equip, and send a missionary from Africa to uh, unreached people groups there on the continent of Africa, which is pretty amazing. And so uh, VBS, we'll get a chance to kind of celebrate more what the Lord did through that here in a couple weeks. We'll talk more about Sin 56 in the coming days, but we just want to be able to celebrate that briefly as we get started here this morning. Uh, If you'll pray with me, then we'll jump into Luke chapter 23. God, thank you for today, the chance to gather together as a church family and to worship you. God, I pray that while we're here in this building gathered together, that we would never lose sight of the fact that our hearts wouldn't drift from the fact that the gospel was never intended to come into our lives and then to just sort of stay there, but that you mobilize all of your people into service for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom. And so when the gospel comes into our lives, it's meant to work in us and through us that the nations might know of the beauty of the gospel and the truth of Jesus. God, I pray that you would stir that inside of us, that you would stir inside of us a longing to be part of what this church is doing here in our own community, but to the ends of the earth, but that you would also stir inside of us a longing to be individually engaged in the task of discipling the nations, of taking the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. God, when we come together and we worship on Sundays, would you stir that in us afresh? Would you deepen in us our wonder, our cherishing, our clinging to the gospel? And then as you deepen that inside of us, would it flame a passion in us to see the gospel and the good news of Jesus reach the lost. God, by the power of your word, the beauty of your son and his death, God, as we look at that this morning, 
Would you do that work inside of us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to I do sort of a collective kind of imagination thing here. And the question that I want to do that around is this. When you think of Jesus, like whether that's you're, you're kind of in your quiet time and you're praying or you're in a conversation with someone and you're talking about Jesus, um, what's the mental image that comes to mind? Like what, when you picture Jesus, what does he look like? And I don't primarily mean his physical characteristics. I mean like what's his demeanor? What's his disposition? What's like his attitude and his temperament toward you? One of my prayers and longings over the course of this series through the Gospel of Luke in the last couple of years is that that image inside of us would be refined into something more biblical. And mostly what I mean there is that I think, I think we have a kind of unbiblical picture that that naturally arises for most of us. Most of us don't need the correction of like, you need to picture a Jesus that's more stern. You need to picture a Jesus that's more harsh toward the reality of sin or picture a Jesus who's like kind of disappointed with you or something like that. Most of us don't need that. Most of us need a more biblical picture of Jesus in terms of his kindness to us, his tenderness toward us, his gentleness, his grace, and his love. As we've been working through what is the last week of Jesus's life here in the gospel of Luke, one of the things that I've tried to keep us kind of centered on and focused on is to glance at everyone around Jesus, but to gaze at him. It's really easy to get distracted by kind of all the noise and all the chaos that surrounds Jesus as we look at these passages. It's a little bit harder to just stay locked in on him. Like think about a live sporting event, whether that's a professional sporting event somewhere or like Sally's six and under soccer game. When you go to those things, there's a lot happening. There's, you know, there's like a crowd. There might be other fields nearby, lots of people. There's lots of noise, but it's not all that difficult to stay focused on the game that's happening in front of you, particularly if you're there to watch your own children. It's not all that hard to stay focused in on what your child is doing. That's the task here in these passages. Keep our focus on Jesus without being distracted by everything that's happening around him. A couple weeks ago, we saw his unfailing kindness in the middle of his betrayal, denial, this increasing desertion and loneliness that he's feeling. Last week, we saw his steady and unwavering commitment to his own unjust condemnation and his own unjust death sentence. Now this week, we're going to see Jesus head to his crucifixion, like physically walk himself there. Luke gives a very brief account of that journey to the place where he's crucified. And then he spends a little bit of time focusing on the actual events that take place during the crucifixion itself. And over the course of that time, what Luke records are multiple conversations that Jesus has as he's walking to the cross, as he's on the cross. Here's our little you are here chart. If you've been here over the last few weeks, we've been sort of trying to ground ourselves in the last week of Jesus's life. This is Friday late morning is where where these events would be. Jesus did underwent all the trials starting at like 6 a.m. on Friday morning. By noon, we know he's on the cross. And so we'll say it's 10 o'clock or so as he's carrying his cross to the place where he's crucified. And what Luke records for us is that in the middle of that journey, from the place where the cross is strapped to Jesus's back to the place where he is lifted, nailed to it and lifted up, a random man is pulled from the crowd to help him carry that cross. There are crowds of women who are weeping and lamenting over what is happening. There are Crowds of people that are jeering and mocking him. Some guards are gambling on his clothes. And by the time they get Jesus up there on the cross, there are two criminals, one on each side. And with Jesus in the middle, while all three of them are in the throes of death, these two are arguing about who that guy is. 
We're going to take this larger section, verse 26 down to 43, and we're going to split it out over two weeks. And the goal is the same as it's been the last few weeks. Gaze at Jesus, glance at everybody else. And while we're gazing at Jesus this morning, my prayer is that our mental image of him is refined a little bit. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is compassionate toward those who sent him to his death. We'll read this whole section, but this morning we're going to really focus in on verses 26 to 34. This is the word of the Lord in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. It says this. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Take a glance at Simon, a glance at these women who are lamenting and weeping, a glance at the crowd there at the cross, all while we gaze at Jesus. As they led him away is where Luke starts this section of the narrative. Now that path that Jesus walks from the place where the cross is laid upon him to the place where he's ultimately going to be crucified. Today, if you go over to Jerusalem, that path is called the Via Dolorosa. I had Corey put together this map for us, so not only are we trying to orient ourselves time-wise, but just like physically what is going on here. That outline would be the walls of Jerusalem, the city. You can see the Garden of Gethsemane there on the right side, outside the walls of the city. That's where Jesus is arrested. And then early, early in like the very beginning hours of this last day for Jesus, like 2 a.m., he's taken all the way down there to the bottom at the house of Caiaphas. And that's where this whole thing begins. Peter denies him there in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house. Then Jesus goes to the Sanhedrin. That's where things, these trials start at like 6 a.m. That would have been kind of attached to the temple, which is on the right side of the city there. Then we're told that he bounces back and forth between Pilate and Herod. Now, Herod's palace is on the left side of the city, and that Hasmonean palace, that's where Pilate would have been. So they're not super far apart, but you've got to walk through the city back and forth as these trials are taking place. Though there's some uncertainty around this, most scholars think that Jesus is given the crossbar of his cross at what is known as the Fortress of Antonia. It's sort of built into the wall there just north of the temple. The path then that Jesus walks, the Via Dolorosa, from his place of beating and scourging to the place where he's ultimately crucified there at Golgotha, outside the wall of the city on the left. That's roughly one kilometer of distance. Now, I say that to a group of Americans, and everybody says, give me something I understand. Just over half a mile. Just over half a mile, and you've got to cut through the city in order to get there. If you were to 
walk from your spot where you're sitting right now to the front door of Liberty High School. That's about an equivalent distance. It's not that far, but the circumstances make it almost impossible for Jesus. Though the act of crucifixion was horrifying and full of shame, it's a very degrading experience for Roman individuals. These executions were public spectacles. This path that Jesus walks, that kilometer walk, would have been lined with spectators who came out to see and to mock and to insult, to jeer, and to watch with horror as these three men are led away to their deaths. Now, most people estimate that the walk of that kilometer probably took Jesus somewhere around 90 minutes to two hours. The upright beam for his crucifixion isn't on Jesus's back. That's waiting for him at Golgotha. It's already in the ground, standing up there. He gets the horizontal crossbar, and he's got to carry that, having been beaten and scourged near to the point of death. And he's either incapable of handling this 70 to 90 pound crossbar, like he physically can't carry it anymore, or he's moving so slowly that the Roman guards get annoyed. Because we're told they seized Simon, a Cyrenian. Matthew and Mark tell us that they impressed the cross upon Simon. It's not a voluntary thing that happens here. A little bit of quick geography. Cyrene, where Simon is from, that was an area in northern Africa that's roughly the equivalent of what is modern-day Libya. We're not told exactly why Simon is in Jerusalem. We're nearly told that he was coming in from the country. The Roman guards scan the crowd and they snag a man who's clearly not Roman. Now, there's a reason for that. For Romans, crucifixion is such a degrading and shameful experience that these guards would never make a Roman stoop to the level of carrying that cross for Jesus. So as Jesus is struggling along, they scan the crowd, they find someone who's not Roman, and they make him carry the weight of that thing behind Jesus as Jesus makes his way to Golgotha. The English translation of that, we're told, is the place called the skull. That's verse 33. In Aramaic, that place is called Golgotha. The Latin translation of that is Calvary. That's why we talk about Calvary. Calvary, Golgotha, same place. Aramaic word, Latin word. They both mean the skull. Take a step back with me for just a second. Jesus is walking along. He's struggling with the weight of that cross. These Roman guards grab a man named Simon and they make Simon help Jesus carry that thing to Calvary, to Golgotha. Simon carrying Jesus' cross reminds us of the weight of sin. We ought to let ourselves be reminded of just how heavy the burden of sin is. There's a physical thing happening here that provides a powerful kind of inverse image of what's happening spiritually. Jesus is fatigued, He's broken by the beating that he's received. He can't physically carry the cross on his own. And so Simon is pulled in to help him. And more so than anyone else in all of human history, Simon gets this firsthand, very tangible, tactile, unforgettable sense of just how heavy the weight of sin is. Jesus needs physical help bearing the weight of that cross. What's the spiritual reality? The spiritual reality is that Simon cannot bear the weight of his own sin. He can't do it. Neither can you. Neither can I. Neither can Peter. Neither can Judas. Neither can these Roman guards. No one can. Only Jesus can bear the weight of our sin. And in the spiritual sense, he does not need a single bit of help from anyone else. So the physical picture is that this task is so heavy that Jesus, fatigued by it all, needs to have Simon brought in to help him carry the cross. The spiritual reality at play is that no one can do this besides Jesus. He's the only one who can bear the weight of this. 
The physical weight is one that nearly broke him, but the spiritual weight of what is happening is one that only he can stand up under. Our sin is unbearably heavy, and only Jesus can stand up underneath it. Now, there's a little detail in this that Luke doesn't include, but Mark does. In Mark chapter 15, as he gives the account of Simon being pressed into service here, Mark gives a little identifier beyond Simon being from Cyrene to help people understand who this guy is. He says that he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Ancient authors would include those names. So if somebody wanted to check the facts here, they could find this Simon whose sons are Rufus and Alexander, and they could go and verify the details of what Mark has written. So Mark says, Simon from Cyrene, He's the father of Rufus and Alexander, had the cross impressed upon him. Nothing else about Simon in any of the gospel accounts. Is this guy a follower of Jesus? Does he have any idea what's going on here? Like, is he just kind of happens to be standing there along the road and gets the unlucky task of having to help carry this cross? Does he know why Jesus is being crucified? Does he care? Is he aware that it's Passover? Like, is this man Jewish? What is going on with this guy? We don't know. But he was noteworthy enough by the time Mark wrote his gospel for Mark to say, hey, you could find this guy. His sons are Rufus and Alexander. And then at the end of the letter of Romans, which Paul writes, In chapter 16, Paul gives a long list of names of people that he would like to greet in Rome. You know who's included in the middle of that list? Rufus. Give my regards, greetings to Rufus. That's this man's son. So something happened in the life of Simon's family here that by the time Paul is reaching the end of his ministry and the end of his life, he would give greetings to Simon's son, Rufus, who's become a prominent individual at the church in Rome. Like Simon gets this unbelievably unique, tangible look at just what Jesus is experiencing gets that cross all the way up there to that hill outside of the city, watches Jesus nailed to it and lifted up there. And if he wasn't a follower of Jesus's at that point, at some point he becomes one, and so do his sons. As I was working with this over the course of the week, there were some lyrics to hymns that kept just kind of flashing like through my heart and my mind. Most hymns, if, like old hymns, if you weren't kind of aware of this, the actual structure, the lyrical structure of their verses usually works through the gospel. So most hymns in the last verse end with some sort of picture of like eternity. And in the first verse, they talk about sin typically. And somewhere in the middle, they talk about Jesus and what he did with the sin that would lead us to the eternal reality. And so there are times where we sing the the hymn, How Marvelous. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The verse in the middle there says, He took my sin and my sorrow, and he made them his very own. What's that next line? And he bore my burden to Calvary. Only he could do it. And suffered and died alone. He's the only one. The weight of that sin is so unbearable that Jesus is the only one who can stand up underneath it. Verse 27, a large crowd of people followed him. So typically what would happen is this crowd is lining the streets and as these men sentenced to death walk by, they would follow in behind them up to the place where the crucifixion is going to happen. Luke says a large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. Luke 
makes a point to identify a specific group of people. Now, I said at the very beginning of this series, it would have been sermon number one in the Gospel of Luke. This is number 78, so it's been a while. You probably don't remember what I said in sermon number one, or you might not even have been here. But I pointed out some of the recurring kind of themes that pop up in the Gospel of Luke. And one of them is Jesus's particular way of engaging with women, that he did not engage with women in the same manner as the prevailing culture at the time. In fact, all of Jesus's interactions with women are dignifying and uplifting. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke never records that it's a woman who scoffs at Jesus. That it's a woman who demeans him or tries to trap him or opposes him or orchestrates the false accusations that surround him. Luke shows us repeatedly that women are uplifted by Jesus, ministered to by Jesus, that they become financial supporters of Jesus. And now at the end of Jesus's life, it's women who are weeping over the injustice that's done to him. And if you've If you sat down and read the account of Jesus's life, and particularly this last week in one setting, it ought to be striking that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he weeps over the city. Then as he's walking out of Jerusalem to be crucified, women from the city are weeping over him. And that gets flipped around over this last week. Now notice what Jesus says to them. Turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. There's no self-pity in what's happening for Jesus. He's chosen this. He chose it during his time on earth, constantly moving toward this fate, but he also chose it in eternity past. This is why the son came for this. And so Jesus says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Why does he say that? He says that because judgment is coming. And what Jesus goes on to refer to here is an actual event that took place. He says, look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? In 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman Empire. Jesus tells these women that they ought not to weep over him, but instead they should weep over that coming reality, and that that judgment will be so bad that women would do something unthinkable, wish that they were barren. That's like ultimate shame for women in this day, that you could not have children. And Jesus says this judgment will be so intense that you'll wish you never had children, that you will think that the lucky women were the ones who didn't have kids. Jesus says it will be so bad, he quotes from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, that people will say to themselves, let the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. Then he makes this proverbial statement in verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? They're doing this to me and I'm innocent. What's judgment going to look like for people who are actually guilty? That's what that proverb means. These women are weeping over Jesus because it seems as though the worst possible thing is happening to him. Crucifixion, that's as bad as it gets in Rome at this time. And it's happening to him Though he's innocent, Jesus looks over to them and says, don't weep for me. This isn't the worst possible thing. Being subject to God's judgment is the worst possible thing. Weep for yourselves because that judgment is coming. Step back again. Lamenting over the death of Jesus is only helpful if we're primarily weeping over the reality of sin. What you see in Jesus' crucifixion is a visible picture of what God's wrath and judgment towards sin looks like. And so it's, it's only helpful and 
terms of weeping over the death and the crucifixion of Jesus, which is something that we kind of typically reserve for like Good Friday. Like one day a year, we'll kind of spend some time being sad about what happened to Jesus. That's an appropriate spot for that. But what we really ought to weep over is the reality of judgment towards sin that made Jesus' death necessary. So the question is, when was the last time the reality of your sin brought you to tears? I don't predominantly mean the consequences of your sin. Like There are times where we sin and the natural consequences of that sin are so great that it makes us grieve. And I don't primarily mean sin as like this outside sort of thing that like exists out there and the sin of the people out there makes me really sad. No, I mean, when was the last time you wept or you had tears, you lamented, you grieved, just the reality of your sin? Not the actions necessarily, but the truth that sin exists just in your being. When was the, I don't know when the last time was, parents, your child brought something into the minivan or whatever with glitter on it, and you like, it's probably from our children's ministry, and you've got the thing with glitter, and you know how glitter works. You're going to be picking glitter off yourself and your children and your spouse for like the next seven days. You're going to have taken multiple showers, washed your hands, the kids are going to have taken baths, and you're going to look at them on like Thursday after they received this thing from our children's ministry on Sunday and you're gonna be like, how's there glitter on your face? Like, why can we not get the glitter off? That's more what I mean when I'm talking about sin. You can't get it off. It's everywhere, on everything, infects everything, visible in everything. It's just part of the reality of what it is to be human. That sin deserves judgment. And that judgment is worth weeping over. Sin in our lives, sin in the lives of the people that we love, sin in our world in all forms. Sin certainly in its external manifestations, but more importantly, sin as the internal state that exists within all of humanity. The simple reality of sin is that more than its visible manifestations and all the brokenness that we experience in this world, sin is a spiritual affront to the glory and the beauty of God. And it deserves judgment. Judgment is just. But mercy, which is not getting something that we deserve, and grace, which is getting something that we don't deserve, mercy is mercy and grace is grace because sin is a real problem. And judgment is a real thing. And so there's this unique balancing in the gospel truths of sin and salvation. Sin is grievous. It's worthy of honest lament and weeping and repentance. And judgment is just in response to that sin. And yet, Jesus is marvelous. The cross is glorious. Salvation is available. And both of those things can be true and can continue to be true throughout the life of a believer. Being saved does not somehow blunt the grievous reality of sin. It's not that, well, I'm saved, so sin isn't a big deal, and these people aren't saved, so their sin is a big deal. No, like, Sin and salvation ought to work in such a way that together they reinforce kind of the extremity of both. Like, the more you understand your salvation, the more grievous sin looks. And the more dark and broken and black that sin looks, the more we appreciate our salvation. And over the course of our lifetime, these two things keep growing further and further and further and further apart. This looks darker and darker, and this looks more and more glorious. And so Jesus says, weep, because this thing is terrible. And yet he says that in the middle of his own death. Like, he says, weep over that in the middle of him dying for that. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland 
says it this way. When you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate sin all over again. Consecrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit in his pure ways, but reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. He's not flustered by your sinfulness. His deepest disappointment is with your tepid thoughts of his heart. Christ died placarding before you the love of God. Again, these, the words of these hymns. This is the middle verse of the hymn, It Is Well. My sin, oh the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Like, it is well. Why? Because sin deserves judgment. And it's grievous and it's worth weeping over, but every last bit of my sin, not in part, but the whole of it, was nailed to the cross and I don't bear it anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. I mean, look at Jesus in the middle of this. He says, don't weep for me. Weep because judgment is real. And then he's going to go to the cross and bear all of it. That's the heart of the Savior for his people. And I will look more closely at what takes place on the cross next week, but just Look at the first few verses of this, starting in verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And then verse 35, 36 kind of give you like, what's the environment of this whole thing? The people stood watching. That's the crowd that followed him up there. And even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Two criminals, one on either side. A crowd of people who are just kind of gawking or probably hurling insults at him. There are these scoffing religious leaders, mocking soldiers. And Luke tells us that in the middle of all of that chaos, Jesus speaks. And they're very familiar words. But it's worth pointing out what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't take this opportunity to declare his innocence in comparison to the criminals on either side of him. He doesn't use the moment as an opportunity to address this crowd that's just kind of passively watching him die. He doesn't pronounce judgment on the religious leaders who falsely accused him and sent him there. He doesn't proclaim condemnation on the Romans who are crucifying him. What does he do instead? He pleads forgiveness. Forgiveness for who? Forgiveness for these guys who are actually guilty of real crime in real life? Yeah, forgiveness for them. Forgiveness for this crowd who's passively looking on and not stopping a grave injustice? Yes. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness for the religious leaders who trumped up the charges and falsely sent him to his death? Yes. Forgive them. Forgiveness for the Romans who are perpetuating the act? Yes. Forgive them. Look, Jesus is not ultimately on that cross because of a perversion of justice. He's not ultimately on the cross because a Roman guard nailed him there. He's on the cross because God predetermined in eternity past that the son would go to that place, bear the just judgment and punishment for humanity's sin, and thereby proclaim the glory of God and the good news of gospel to the entire world. And so Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. It's the whole reason he's there. That's why he's hanging on the cross. Jesus is compassionate toward those who sent him to his death. And when I make that statement, I'm not primarily talking about the Romans or the Jewish leaders in this passage. I'm talking about me. Like I sent him there. My sin sent him there. Your sin sent him there. And in the middle of that, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive Tim. 
Father, forgive you. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Again, the words of another hymn kept like flashing through my mind. Every, every so often we sing the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It was my sin that held him there. My sin. Until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Like he's compassionate toward the very sinful people who sent him to his death. Last week we saw that in the middle of Jesus' false accusations. He stood there innocent while everyone else around him was guilty. And this week we see him on the cross pleading forgiveness for those who deserve none of it. An innocent man in the midst of guilty men goes to the cross and then while he's there surrounded by evil, indifferent, apathetic humanity, a savior pleads forgiveness. No one is outside the bounds of that gospel story. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans, like we all have a weight of sin that we cannot bear. The weight of that sin is worth a just judgment, and that judgment is worth weeping and lamenting over. Look, it's impossible for you to have sinned so badly that you're beyond the scope of Jesus' plea, Father, forgive them. And there's Jesus bearing the weight and the burden of that sin, warning about the judgment, pleading forgiveness. And so my question for you is, what's your mental image of Jesus? My prayer is that that mental image is more biblical now than it was before. Yes, more biblically accurate in terms of the power of Jesus. We've seen his miracles and talked about his sovereign power. Yes, I hope it's more biblically accurate in terms of the righteousness of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus. But more than any of that, I pray we have a more biblical, biblically accurate picture as we consider his posture toward us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is not a condemning bone in the body of Jesus. You come before him in your blackest, darkest, most broken moments of sin, and you do not have a Jesus who's shaking his head or wagging his finger at you. You've got Jesus in that moment who would plead on your behalf, Father, forgive them. That's the heart of Jesus. His face toward you is always tender, is always gentle, is always compassionate, is always kind. His posture toward you is always for you and with you, supporting you, encouraging you, lifting you, carrying you, challenging you, changing you, loving you, forgiving you, humbling you. That's the Savior toward his people. And the gospel is not, if I come to Jesus, then he will love me. The gospel is, he loves me, and the cross proves it, and because of that, I can come to him. That's the posture of Jesus. This is Dane Ortland again in his book, Gentle and Lowly. The evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his, mistreated misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally, in your place. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. He goes on. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug harder. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. 
It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward toward us all the more. It means that on the day we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. How great is his mercy. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I think sometimes we sing the words to these hymns and the mental image, subconscious or conscious, that we have of Jesus is that he is begrudging, merely tolerating. That he sort of deals with us because he has to, but in a disappointed sort of way. But the picture of the gospel in both the gospel accounts, but also in the whole of scripture, is that he goes to the cross lovingly, willingly, even, even joyfully because he loves his people. And he interacts with us in our sin according to that love. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen? Amen. If you're someone who volunteered to pass out communion, will you come grab these trays and start to distribute them? While they do that, there's going to be a video that plays. Uh, the man speaking, you're not going to be able to see his, his face, but the man speaking is a man named Elder D.J. Ward. He was a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky at Main Street Baptist Church. And so this video kind of takes the last few weeks here and compresses it all into one spot. And he's talking about the blood of Jesus and his accomplishment on the cross. So while the elements are passed out, let's watch this. I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. Now, brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes is something, it means somewhere they had to have an assignment. Well, what was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus. For he shall save, not attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, not want to save, but he shall save his people from their sin. Is that right? I said, is that right? Now I hear this. I hear this. I hear it on televisions. I hear it in churches. That God has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, then he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. I've even heard this. You've got to help God save you. He can't do it by himself. If God cannot do it by himself, then he didn't accomplish it. He's a false God. He's a liar. And you best not trust him. If he didn't do it, then we ought to stop singing, Jesus paid it all. Saying he paid some of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if he did not accomplish it, we are here in vain. And you can have all of the religion you want. If this was not accomplished, we're going to hell. It's just that blunt, it's just that simple, it's just that clear.
But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best and your works need not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood and he stands as your substitute, your mediator before God this morning, pleading the blood, pleading his blood, that perfect sacrifice, that holy attainment, he's pleading the blood. You can rest that all of my sins are under that blood. Did he accomplish it? Did he fail? Do we need Mohammed to come after him? Do we need another prophet after him? I declare this morning, he paid it all. He paid it all. Every drop of it, every sin I was going to commit, every sin I thought about committing, he nailed it to his cross. on this Sunday when we take communion in this style, I would sort of lead all of us in taking this together at the same time. But I want to leave a little bit of space here. And so uh, here's what we're going to do. Brian and the band are going to uh, begin to lead us in a song. If you want to just sing some of that and sort of prepare your heart to take those elements you're welcome to do that. If you just kind of want to sit and have that sung over you from Brian and our congregation and then take those elements when you're ready, you can do that. But I want to invite you to spend a little bit of time certainly reflecting on Jesus's body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. But I also want to encourage you to take a little bit of time and consider his posture in the middle of it. It's not begrudging. It's not self-pitying. It's not tolerating. Certainly not angry. It's not condemning. His posture truly is for you. He gave his body and he gave his blood that sin nailed to that cross might be forgiven. And so when you're ready, I'm gonna invite you to take, take your elements um, if you're here with someone, you want to do that together, you can certainly do that. And then I'm going to invite you to just enter into worship. This is going to feel a little bit more unstructured than normal. Brian's probably not going to tell you to stand up at some point. Spend some time with the Lord, take communion, and then enter into worship with us. 10.58, which is close to our normal ending time. Uh, and so if you got somewhere you need to be, no judgment, you can... You can file out that way. Uh, we're going to sing one more song and just sort of like linger in the presence of Jesus. Um, just about what a, what a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name that name Jesus is. And so if you need to go get your kids, that's totally fine. I mean that. Uh, normally we're done by now, but uh, we just wanted to provide a little bit more space to kind of hang out in the presence of Jesus. Mm.